0: All right. Well, I thought it was important to uh, fill you in on my Disneyland trip. Remember I told you I was going to Disneyland? Yeah, so I got down to Disneyland. You all know how much I enjoy Disneyland. And so the last three times I've gone... I've had my, they've looked at my pass and said, oh, there's something wrong with your pass. They end up looking at it. Oh, there's something right about it. We'll fix it. But here's your just ticket to get in. So this time I decided, you know what? I'm not going to do that whole ticket thing. I'm going to go to the ticket booth and I'm going to fix it. So I showed up, you know, and I'm like, hey, you know, this is what's going on. And the lady looks at it. And she goes, well, how'd you get in? I go, I don't know. You guys kept letting me in for the three of the times. She goes, well, we never initiated your pass. Mr. Niswonger, I've got such good news for you your past actually starts today and you have a whole other year of disneyland Yeah. <laughs> oh so pray for my sanctification but here's what we've been doing if you need a bible this morning we'd love to get you a bible um guys are going to be coming down if you need a bible raise your hand Um, We've said this before, if you don't have a Bible, take this Bible. We would love for you to have it as your own. Um, And even if you just need to borrow one because you you didn't bring yours this morning, you can feel free to do that. What we've been doing is we've been teaching through the book of Hebrews. And we've been trying to, to get to the bottom of who's Jesus. And I think unlike any other book, Hebrews presents an aspect of Jesus that I'm so thankful that God in his sovereignty through His Holy Spirit, led along the rider to help us understand who Jesus is. And so we've been trying for the last few months just to get across this idea how much better and greater Jesus is. But for the last few weeks, we've been really talking on and hammering on this idea that ultimately when God created humanity, what He wanted to do is He wanted a nearness between us and Him. That to be His image bearers, to be these people that are created in His very image, He designed us to be near Him. Sin happened, obviously, that broke that relationship. But God, throughout the rest of the Bible, after Genesis 3, is laying out for us his desire and his passion to be with humanity. Now in the old covenant, obviously humanity had to stay at a distance from him because of sin. They couldn't come into this awesome presence and this holiness of God. So he kept them at a distance. But there was always this promise of a new covenant in which God was going to change us and make us different so that we could draw near. And the writer of Hebrews is making this bold announcement That this one that the Old Testament had been talking about, Jesus, has come. And you don't have to be in the Old Covenant any longer. You can now draw near to God because of the fulfilled work of Jesus. And so that's really what we've been trying to grapple with and understand. What is the full significance of it? Now this week I was trying to think, how do I continue to help us understand how significant this is? And and I was thinking about a trip that that I took to the White House. Now, as you guys know, a few weeks ago, I went out to Washington, D.C., and I went to the White House. Now, this is what it, it looks I didn't want to do that. Uh, there it is. There we go. So I went to the White House. I went for a run, as I'm, and as I'm running around, I stood in front of it, and I took pictures of myself, you know, a little selfie action, because that's what narcissistic people do. And, I, and so anyways, I wanted everybody to know that I went to the White House, Now, what hit me, though, is there's a huge difference between going to the White House and going into the White House. Now, my wife, back in 2006, my mom calls me up and she says, Hey, Todd, can I talk to Lisa? Because I'm going to go to Washington, D.C., and I would love to take her with me. I kind of sat there quiet, and finally I go, Hey, you remember, like, I'm your son, right? Like, you don't want me to come with you? And she goes, No, not really. And I go, Well, explain to me. She goes, well, we're going to take a this, this other lady was going with her. They were going to take her niece, and they just thought it would be good to have some adult supervision for her niece. And so we're going to bring Lisa along. And she goes, the reason I need to talk to her is because we're going to go visit the vice president. Again, I'm thinking blood relative. She bore me. She brought me up in her bosom. She raised me. Maybe that's why she didn't want to take me. I go, seriously? She goes, Yeah. So my wife goes off to Washington, D.C., and I'm thinking to myself, she's not going to the White House. She's going into the White House. Now, the way that she was going to get into the White House was through a guy named Joe Meyer, who's the Secretary of State in Wyoming. He and Dick Cheney grew up together, and Casper were best friends. They dated each other's wives. And so Lisa, the only reason she was going to get into the presence of the vice president Was because of Joe Meyer. She had to have somebody that she knew because if I walked up to the guards and I said, Hey, fellas, how you doing? Here to see the vice president, is that cool? They would laugh at me. But instead, my wife got to go hang out in his office. In fact, they called her that morning. And she answered the phone and they said, yes, this is the White House. Uh, We know that you're coming to visit us. We're just wondering if there's anything you need. Just so you know, the car will bring you through the gate and we'll drop you off at the door to the west wing and then you'll be able to walk around and, and see the various things around the White House. So my wife is walking around, but then joe escorts are in and they spend almost an hour with the vice president and lisa said it was amazing as they talked about growing up together and dick cheney taking off his shoes and and taking off his coat and just sitting there and there they are with the vice president of the united states it was the difference between going to the white house and going into the white house jesus doesn't just take us to the father he takes us into the very father's presence That is the work and the power of what Jesus is talking about. We are no longer meant to stand at a distance from the Father. We are now, Romans 8, able to come to Him and to come to Him with the understanding He is our Father. So that's really what we've been trying to get across, and that's what the writer of Hebrews is going to bring into this. Now, the thing that's going to happen, and we're going to really now get into the more nitty-gritty of how do we draw near to God One of the things that we have to understand about this particular passage of Scripture is there is only one way to the Father, and that is through Jesus. That's why for the last few weeks, we've just pounded home this idea. If you're somebody here today that doesn't know Jesus, you have no access to the Father. You have to have somebody that intimately knows the Father and the Son being absolutely an essence God, but yet the second person of the Trinity is the only one that can escort us in because of his work on the cross, is that he is now our escort to be and to stand in front of the Father, so if you don't know Jesus, you will never know the Father. Now the second part of it, though, is, is when we ask this question then, more specifically, well, how do I draw near? Because it's been kind of vague. Like, how is it that we're supposed to draw near? Now one of the things he's going to do is he's going to get to the very end, and if you've got your Bibles, you can look at the very end in Hebrews 10.25, and he talks about this motivation, and he's going to lay out the motivating factor at the very end of it, which is this idea that the motivation for coming near the Father is all the more as you see the day drawing near. Now there's three different ways you can kind of look at this to help us understand what's the, what is he trying to tell us about coming near in this. Is it number one, is that we will all give an answer before God, which is a true statement, 2 Corinthians 5. Paul wants us to know that one of the motivating factors for our life is all of us one day will stand before God. Is that what he's talking about? I don't think so in this particular case because I think he's got something else in mind. Well, is it in Ephesians five fifteen through 16 issue where it's like this idea, and I think we're getting closer, we need to be careful how we walk, not as unwise but as wise, making the best use of our time. Here it is because the, the days are evil. In other words, is a motivating factor knowing that because our world is evil and falling apart, is that when we talk about the day in which Jesus Christ one day will write all things, is that our motivating factor? I think the third one is what's really important here and you see this like in Matthew 24 when Jesus was preaching an incredible sermon, the that Discourse to all the people and he's talking about the day of the Lord or when he'll come back. Now one of the things that he says that's very important to this discussion is, is he said because lawlessness will be increased and this being on the day of the Lord or towards the day of the Lord, the love of many will grow cold but the one who endures to the end will be saved. Now what he's talking about is, is the danger that all of us face in this room is that we can become cold. It's not like we set out to become cold, do we? It's not like at the end of the day we, we, we're thinking to ourselves, man, I hope in my walk with Jesus I don't have a fervency for Jesus, an excitement for a Jesus, a love for Jesus, but there's just times in which if we're not careful, this world and its system just begins to pull us down and Jesus' point is, is that we can become cold. In other words, there are obstacles to us coming near God and the great thing is is he's talking about is just the coldness we might experience that he's going to talk about later in Hebrews 12 in regards to sin and just the things that so, so easily entangle us. He's wanting us to know the danger, and I think this has been the point in Hebrews 3, Hebrews 4, Hebrews 6, all along the way is don't let yourself become cold towards the reality of the work of Jesus and the thrill of coming towards near God. And you see this a lot, he's going to get to later, we're going to talk about it a little bit more, but this idea of endurance becomes huge. I think sometimes we think Christianity's a sprint. This year, one of the thrills that I had was to coach track and field for 10 and 11 year olds. I used to coach high school students and this was like a whole new thing for me, which by the way, every track meet I went to, I would laugh my head off because it was so stinking cute. But when you're teaching endurance running To little kids These little five and six year olds When I'd watch them If you've ever seen it man They're standing up there Getting ready to run the mile You know And they're all ready to go The gun goes off And man they take off like crazy And then about halfway around As they start to get tired They think I got three and a half laps to go And they Slow down And then a kid starts to catch up to them And what do they do They take off and then they slow down. And they take off and they slow down. And they take off and they slow down. Endurance says that Christianity is not a sprint. It's a marathon. The idea here is just a steady, ongoing, passionate, fervent love for Jesus. It's the love that doesn't quit. It's the love that stays in there. But I think there's another side of running that plays well into this when we talk about endurance. And I always tell my runners this, the moment that you get separated from the pack, you're done. Now I think this is very important because I think this is now what the writer of Hebrews is gonna tell us about drawing near. Is that in order for me to draw near, one of the most important things that can happen is not that just I show up on a Sunday morning, which by the way, I'm glad you're here and I think this is a way in which we can cultivate our passion and love for Jesus. It's not just by hanging out alone and praying and reading. That is definitely a way to cultivate our love and passion for Jesus. But when he answers the question of how do I draw near to God, in verse 24 or 25, he's gonna tell us, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some. It is so fascinating to me that in all the things that the writer of Hebrews could have told us, is he doesn't say to us to read your Bible and pray, even though those are wonderful things. He doesn't say to show up on Sunday morning in this glob of people that come here on a Sunday morning. He says, if you are going to be a fervent follower of Jesus, you have got to have God's people around you. You cannot, in fact, draw near to God effectively without the body of Christ. Now, I don't think he's talking about, again, like I said, this being alone or else this room. I think he's talking about, we're gonna come to it a little bit later, it's this idea of ongoingly being with God's people day after day after day because we need them. It's what I meant by it's a pack religion. It's meant to be done in groups of people. You are not meant to be alone. See, the danger of what happens when we get alone is that we can begin to deceive ourselves and lie to ourselves and think that we're okay because somebody's not telling us that we're not. Now, let me give you an illustration of being self-deceived. I don't know how many of you watched American Idol, but I used to watch it. I will confess to it. I own it. I'm ashamed of it, and I am totally good with Jesus now in front of it. But I remember watching American Idol and my favorite one to watch was always the beginning because you never knew who was going to come forward and sing. And my wife and I would always sit there and the worst singer would come forward thinking they were the best singer on the planet and my wife and I would sit there going, man, a friend, a parent, somebody should have told them, they're awful. <laughs> they're self-deceived. But I think not only like them... We can begin, if we're not careful, to think that we're not deceived. See, in order to accomplish what God's called us to do, and I would put it in this way it's this idea of how does God mature us? One of the ways in which He matures us is in and through people. We are desperate for people. Now, what he's going to do in verse 22, 23, and 24 is he's going to give these commands that that help us understand now, if we're going to really now be these people that are passionate about following Jesus, he's going to give these commands, and the first one that's tied up in this is this command to consider how to stir up one another. Now, the word consider means is that if I'm going to draw near to Jesus, I need, plural, let us, people around me that are considering Now, the word consider means to put thought into, to think about it, to wrestle with it. In other words, I need people around me that look at me and my life, and they wrestle about how it is they're going to stir me up. In other words, Todd has a tendency now to get cold, so the body now is going to come around me and think through, how do we walk with Todd so that he does not get cold in his love towards God? Now, he's going to talk about it with this word, stir up. Now, the thing about this word is it's called, it literally means to agitate. Now, for all of those of you that like to agitate, this is not you. So don't don't think, I didn't realize agitation was a spiritual discipline. I must be mature. You're not. To agitate would be the idea of what happens to an oyster when a piece of of sand goes in and a pearl begins to go around it. To agitate someone is the expectation, not just they're annoying me so I'm going to let them know they're annoying me, it's to come alongside of them and to acknowledge that they are annoying, but to now put a pearl around it so that at the end of it they are matured. See, if deep within ourselves we have this tendency to deceive ourselves, then we need those around us that know how to come alongside of us and to help us now grow to become the people that God intends us to be. That in other words, if we're going to be the people that draw near, we need people around us to teach us and walk with us and help us to mature in Jesus Christ. Now, it's not only just that, but when we come to Galatians 6, we kind of start to understand how when I work through my sin, somebody is supposed to come alongside of me. Now, we learn in one instance that the way in which we deal with sin is that we're to have people around us that are, the word is, mature. Now, the reality of a mature person is this, is that they not only know how to do it, that would be one of the big things, that they're mature in that way, but they know what to do. Now, the next thing you see in there is that they know how to come alongside of me, and we're going to talk about this in a second in regards to 1025, but they know what to do in my life. In other words, I need people around me that know how to help me mature. Now, part of it is is that they know what to do, but they also know how to do it, which is the next word, it's gentleness. See, for all of those of you that like to agitate, this should be a word that you memorize called gentle. See, there's some of you around here that I know when I talk to you, you'll, you'll come up to me and generally say, you know, I just had to tell him what's up. I had to take, give, give him tough love, if you know what I'm saying. No, what you need to learn is this thing called gentleness. Now, what's gentleness? Gentleness does not mean we don't have a backbone. Gentleness means we know what to do, but we know what to do in such a way to actually help the person gentleness is now when you think about it when I was a kid I remember I was at my grandma and grandpa's house and we had got back from the lake and I had a terrible sunburn my grandpa being who he was walked up to me and he just said well go get in the shower now anybody that knows when you have a sunburn and you get into a hot shower that is not gentle and there are many of you that are hot showers in this church But when I got out of the shower and I'm stinging from what's going on, grandma came in. Grandma came in with the grandma size, I went to Costco aloe. (laughs) And she says, baby, lay down on the bed and I'll take care of you. But it was just. The idea here is when we talk about agitate is not only knowing what to do but how to do it. In our lives, we need people around us that not only know what to do, but they know how to do it. Now, the what to do now becomes the thing in which I think the writer of Hebrews, he really wants us to understand in this. Now, one of the ways that he's going to talk about how we do it is in verse 22. He's going to say, let us draw near, and he's going to say this, with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. So how is it that the person that knows what to do does what they do? Well, oftentimes, when I'm walking with people, I don't need all the time people to just tell me I'm stupid and I don't know what I'm doing. I need people to remind me of the gospel. See, what happens so often is, is in our walk with Jesus, we become discouraged. When we become discouraged, we feel defeated. When we become defeated, we begin to kind of drift away from our relationship with Jesus. The person that now walks and understands what to do in our lives now comes alongside and reminds us who we are in Jesus. This is everything that we talked about last week that should blow our little minds away that even though every last one of us in here is from the seed of Adam, we're a long line of people that have been separated from God. The greatest news in the world is is through the death of Jesus, he has conquered sin, covered our shame, was resurrected to give us a new life and I have to be ongoingly reminded that even though I feel unclean because of the work of Jesus, God views me as absolutely clean. I am sprinkled clean, not clean, not only in my conscience, but the idea is is that God sees all of me clean. Over and over, I have to be told that. My wife is the master at this. So often I tend to be the type of person that beats myself up and she's just that one that whispers gospel to me because I need to hear that while I am a man that ongoingly battles with sin and I struggle to see myself like I ought to, God sees me as absolutely holy because of the work of Jesus. In other words, they know what to do. They know how to come into our lives and understand that in order to draw near to God, we have to be reminded ongoingly who we are. It's everything we talked about, like I said last week. But it's not just about be reminded of who we are inside of in who Jesus is. But the other thing he's going to talk about is this idea of let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised, and here's his thing, is faithful. Now that word hope is so key here. The moment that I lose hope, it becomes one of the biggest defeaters to me drawing near to Jesus. We're not just talking hope like a wish, like I hope Santa Claus brings me a new pair of skates, or I I hope somehow tomorrow goes better than today. Hope is built off of faith, which we talked about in the verse before, the solid truth of who God is, and if God has been solid in the past, and if he's solid in the present, then you can dang well be sure he's going to be solid in the future. In other words, the same God who's taken care of everything up to now is going to take care of everything no matter what happens in the future. When he talks about full assurance, he's, that's what he means. This idea that God, I can always trust, he's always going to glorify himself and it will always be in such a way for my good. If I don't have hope, I will always go and seek and find it somewhere else. And so therefore, in order to draw near, I need people around me that remind me it is worth it to follow Jesus. I think that's why Jesus, when he, was, when he was traveling, he would constantly tell them, there's a pearl of great price, there's a treasure in the field. And in other words, my grace is not just in the past. My grace is not just in the present. But if you follow me and draw near to me, it doesn't mean that there won't be consequences, there won't be struggles, there won't be heartache, there won't be persecution, there won't be trials. But I will walk with you through them and you can find hope that every trial that comes your way, I'm gonna use, not for your detriment, but to transform you into the image of my son. God is always there for our good, and our greatest good is to be transformed in the image of Jesus. In order to draw near, these are the things. But I think there's also something else in here that we need to get. And the other one is, is why we're doing what we're doing. Why we're doing what we're doing is because God has created us to display him. Remember a few weeks ago we talked about this idea of what it means to be a man and what it means to be a woman. What it means is, is every one of us in here were created in the image of God. We were meant to be image bearers. We were meant to display him well into the world. That the idea that he's talking about in Love and Good Works is not just somehow that all of us now would sit around and go, oh, this feels good, you know, where I'm saved, I'm all these things. But it now takes its next step, and I would say this, it takes its next step into a scary adventure in which now everything that God has done in us now begins to be reflected out into the world, and it is a glorious, wonderful, but also scary reality to now be taken out into this world to display God. These love and good works are what God does in me through my time of faith and through my time of hope. This love and good works now becomes what comes out of my life and it comes out of my life in such a way that we reach into a world that is desperate for Jesus. It's the intent of God to display himself through us. See, the reason that we do what we do is not just because we don't want to go to hell or not just because we're avoiding all these different things. We do what we do because we've been created by God to display him well, and there's a world that's desperate to have him displayed in. I sometimes wonder, like, why God does different things in my life. Don't you? I'll sit around and I'll wonder, and I remember so often... There was a guy, and I've told you about him before, a pastor named Don Knotts. Not that Don Knotts. But he and I always used to sit down, and and I was in the middle of going through just a difficult time, and he said, you know, Todd, here's the funny thing. I've always found that what God does in our life, he always transforms and uses it for the benefit of others. It wasn't about three or four years later, I remember I'm sitting with this guy, and suddenly his life just began to echo with past, my own past. I began to share with him what God had done in my life and in sharing with him what God had done in my life, the, the, the love and the good works that God had done in me began to come out and the greatest thing in the world is he and I made a connection and within a few weeks, he'd embraced Jesus. See, all these different things God is pulling together but here's the key. I need people in my life to do this. I cannot draw near and be the man that God intended me to be without people. I had multiple years of biblical training. I have been a pastor for almost 25 years. You would think maybe that guy can finally do it on his own. And I'm here to tell you is one that battles ongoingly with sin, that struggles in his walk with Jesus, that is not all the time perfect, I am desperate, hey, (laughs) my wife says that, not you. I'm desperate for you. We demonstrate our need of God most by demonstrating our need of the body most. I can always tell people that know their desperation for God because they have a desperation for the body. They want to have God's people around them speaking into their life because they've hit a point of desperation. They've hit the bottom. They're struggling and straining and trying to figure out what to do, and you can tell they've tried everything else. And so in this last-ditch effort, which is so weird, they reach out for the body, and in finding the body, they find God. Not that we are God, but we now become these people, that are the hands and the feet of interacting with people in regards to that. If you're someone here today that's battling, understand that you were not meant to do that alone. You were meant to have other people around you, to walk with you and know you, encourage you, strengthen you, be honest with you. And I would say this, those of you that think you're doing well are just as desperate. I've always found we don't sense our need for the body until the proverbial you-know-what hits the fan. Suddenly we realize I am desperate. And the saddest thing in the world is by the time often that happens, I have not developed the relationships that I need that number one would protect me from going down the stupid path I went down, but also number two, that now the friendships around me that know how to come alongside of me in that need. You are desperate for relationship whether you know it or not. And you will never draw near to God like God intended you to draw near to him without the body at work in your life. Never. I'm not talking about just showing up to church on Sunday. I'm not talking about just reading your Bible and praying. I'm not talking about chilling with your wife. I'm talking about people that are in your life that are agitating you in the good sense of the word. You will never know what it means to draw near apart from them. God has designed his body in such a way that we are desperate for each other. And one of the things I was wrestling through, if that's really true, then what do I do now? Let me just click forward because I missed a few slides. Here's this one. Refuse to be alone. Now here's what I mean by this idea of refuse to be alone. Generally when we are walking through a difficulty... Our first instinct within us is to feel shame and to hide ourselves from whatever it is that we're not wanting to be honest with people about. It is the sin that has been passed down from Adam and Eve, generation after generation after generation. We tend to be hiders. We tend to not want people to know who we are. I, 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 we were just talking about earlier, Robin and I were kind of wrestling through some different things. And, 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 and we were talking about this thing in which we think we want to get deep with people. But the moment you start getting deep with people, it gets scary, doesn't it? Because you have to be honest about yourself, You actually have to be transparent and let them get to know you, but you've worked so hard for so long to portray to people that you're somebody that you're not, and now all of a sudden this one person is going to get to know you at a level that is so stinking scary. The guy that did that in my life was a guy named Blake. I just come to know Jesus. I was so sick of hypocritic Christians because I'd watched my parents in their kind of church world, and all of a sudden this guy comes along, and I'll never forget it. He's a pastor, and I looked at him and I said, "How are you doing?" And he began to confess his sin to me. I mean, I'm like, "Hey, whoa, it's not." Whew. And he just started laying out for me the struggles of what he's been going through. And, and he's asking me for prayer. And I just remember for the first time ever, this man who I thought was this, 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 this guy that had no problems just began to let me know actually in this transparent way, I refuse to stay hidden. In fact, the thing he would always say to all of us that he's discipled us is he said the greatest person to be is a person that is an open book. To never hide who you are from anybody, but to allow people to see you for who you are, because when people see you for who you are, then you never have the tendency to feel you need to hide. You see this, especially in regards to 1 Peter 5, 8-9, through 9. I think this is exactly what the evil one likes to do. He likes to convince us in our head that we need to go be alone to deal with it. But the problem is, I get out there, and like I've said before, we're deceived. Satan keeps us in that deception, and he begins to put us into this spiral. And then when finally things have crashed all around us, then we want God. But the idea is, is that we're supposed to fight back against that, he says. In this, he uses this, resisting him firm in your faith. In other words, I need the body to speak faith into me. I think the other one is, is this. Realize that you can't be everyone's friend, and you can't do everything. Now that's hard living in the Facebook generation where we've all got in here 2,000 friends. No, you don't. (laughs) Let's define what a friend is. A friend is someone who knows you personally. A friend is someone that you know personally. A friend is someone that you know at the end of the day they will speak truth into your life, but they will also speak grace and gentleness into your life. It also is that person that it, that when everything has finally crashed around you, you know that they are going to be there for you. What that means is, is, in order to get to that type of relationship, you can only have so many friendships. You can only have so many people that you, you choose to be around. In order to develop that kind of depth, that's why we believe as a church we're supposed to gather ourselves into smaller pockets of people. We can't be that in this particular room. I need to get into smaller groups of people. I need to get to know people. But the other thing that my wife and I are wrestling through is is not only do I need to understand that I have have the capacity to have limited friendships, but I also have the capacity, the second one, is limited to do the things that sometimes I think I want to do. Now, I grew up in the 70s and the 80s, the latchkey kid in which parents would take their kids and try to get them involved in everything so that they could go work and do whatever else they were trying to do. It's continued into now in which we are just constantly and here's the word busy. Busy and busy and busy. Whenever I walk up to people I'm like, "Hey man, how are you doing?" and one of us is going to look at you and go, "Oh, I just been busy." See, there's a time in which now we as a church, and I would say now is the time as everything is ramped up and we're involved in more and more things and culture is going faster and faster that a group of people called the church need to start saying no to all the millions of myriads of things that go on, not because those things are bad, but because we're determined as a group of people that to know Jesus and love Jesus and follow Jesus and draw near to him is more important than anything that this world has to offer. And I'm gonna first come to him and ask, ask him, what do you want me to be involved in and not get myself so strung out that I have no more time to know Jesus. I think at the end of the day, most men and women, the reason that we struggle in our walk with Jesus is we are way too busy. We wake up and we're dead tired so I don't want to spend time with Jesus. I go to work and the machinery starts to kick. I'm at lunch and all I want to do is eat and stare at my food. I go to work in the afternoon. Then I come home at night and I've got to deal with all the myriad of things. Finally, we sit down and instead of wanting just to be with Jesus with other people, I would much rather be with Netflix because they don't talk back to me and I can just go live in their imaginary world for a little while. I think a group of people have to be bold right now, not ascetic where we think somehow we're better because we're not doing things, but the belief that knowing and loving and following and drawing near to God is more valuable than anything that this world has to offer, and taking the time to actually experience it. Taking the time to have people around me. See, it takes time to do that, doesn't it? All week long, I've been sending text messages out to friends. First of all, thanking them for these ones that truly are in my life and speak truth into my life. But I've had to confess that because of all my busyness, I have not been a good friend to them. Why? Busy. Let me just take some pressure off you. God can know every person on this planet. And God can involve himself in everything that's going on. You can't. You are not God. You can see this in regards to just Ephesians 5.15, this idea of be careful how you walk. I think there's just this wise and this unwise way that we've got to learn to redeem the time. We've got to think through things all kinds of different. I would say another one, and I stole this from a guy yesterday that spoke Scott Mill, the idea of being a surface dweller. A surface dweller is that person that stays on the level of, hey, how are you? How's life? Hey, good. Hey, see the game last night? (laughs) Celtics are out, aren't they? Isaiah Thomas hurt. Things aren't going to go well. A surface dweller stays up on that upper level. The bottom dweller, which is sometimes given a bad name, is actually, I think, what the Bible calls us to be. The bottom dweller refuses and gets to the bottom of it. Last yesterday, after Scott Mel talked, I got four different text messages asking me, "Todd, what's wrong with you? Are you okay?" Um, and I was like, at first, I'm like, "Gosh, did I look like terrible yesterday?" But then all of a sudden, this is what hit me. I had four people that cared enough yesterday to get deep from the standpoint to text me and say, "No, no, no, like really, are you okay?" There's something powerful about bottom dwellers. Bottom dwellers are those people that don't let you get by with anything. They they want to know how you're doing and what's going on. They ask you the questions that need to be asked. I've got one friend in my life, Spencer, and I hate getting together with him. Because he always asks these questions where I'm like, yeesh! And so one time I was laying out for him all the things that I was working on and And I'm I'm going back and forth on some different things, and how I was trying to do this, and how I was trying to do that. And he just looked at me, and he goes, can I ask you a question? And instantly, I'm like, no. (laughs) He goes, I've never thought about this, but do you have a Messiah complex? I don't know, do you? (laughs) And I go explain to me, and he just began to talk to me. And the good thing about what Spencer did in my life that day is he brought gospel. He didn't call me, you know, a loser, nana a head he, he came into my life, and he began to speak truth into that messiahship that I think I have. He talked to me about the gospel and my desperation for Jesus. He talked about the fact that I don't have to save people. That's God's job. I don't have to fix problems. That's God's job. We need people in our life that aren't surface dwellers. Which means, I would say this, we need to search for what I call hot people and those that are different from you. Hot people are those people that are ones that are going to agitate you. They're the ones that are passionate followers of Jesus. They're the ones that when you sit down with them, they talk with you about what God is doing in their life. And I'm not talking in a weird way, I'm talking in a real way. But I think the other thing that's become very important to me is to have people in my life that aren't like me. I was involved in a community group for a while here in which almost all the people in that community group were not like me. Anybody that knows me knows I love sports. I love to talk about sports. I love to, to think about heady things. I, I love to do all these different things. And in many ways, that group had different people that, you know, that would supply what I would think are like, man, my interests. But I started to realize that the people that are like me oftentimes didn't sharpen me because they just told me what I wanted to hear. It was the people not like me that began to see the sharpening that needed to happen in my life, they began to speak into my life from a different angle. They didn't want to talk about sports and they didn't want to talk about mathematics and they didn't want to talk about theology maybe on on one level. What they wanted to talk about more was just Jesus and what Jesus is doing in our lives. That was the only thing that we shared in common was Jesus. And so suddenly that's what we talked about and in many ways those people are some of my nearest and dearest friends because we didn't have anything else to talk about besides Jesus. I think the last thing that I would say to you is this. If you don't have people in your life that you know are people that will speak into your life in a powerful way, get them. Now, here's how we do it at Cornerstone. If you're not involved in a community, if you're not involved in an intimate group of people, there are these pockets of them out there that meet. And if you'd like to get to know some people, that's a great way to dive in and to find these people that will do what the book of Hebrews talks about in your life, to come alongside of you and help you to draw near to God. It'll be people not like you. Some will be older, some will be younger, some will be single, some will be married, some will be large, some will be small. I mean, there'll just be all kinds of different people. Now, the one thing that I always laugh about is those of you that are maybe a little older that don't have kids, you have a tendency to not want to go into the group with kids, which, by the way, I completely understand. But I would say that's the group you need the most. Because these groups need spiritual grandmas and grandpas and mothers and fathers. You need to be agitated a little and reminded of what it's like to have crying, screaming, disobedient, good for nothing. Wait. (laughs) Let me say that Children. If you're younger in this room, you need older men and women in your life. I can't say that enough. problem with being, I'll just include myself in it, how about under 50? Because those of us under 50 are still young and spry. <laughs> you put enough under 50 people together and all it is is the mere pooling of ignorance. You add a little age to it and the aged that have walked with Jesus suddenly add a whole new dimension. They've been there, done that. I dare you if you're a high school student to get a spiritual grandma or grandpa. They cook good too. Find people, get them into your life, have intimate relationships. If you're going to be the man or the woman that God's designed you to be, that is his point in this particular passage in Hebrews 10, is get yourselves around people that will spur you on and keep you from getting cold. And so if you want information, you can get information out at the the desk that's out there. If you want to come talk to any of the pastoral staff, we'd love to help you. But you're going to hear this a lot from Cornerstone. As we move forward as a church It's going to get uncomfortable for you If you are not in intimate relationships with people I do not want a church of people That sit there and absorb oxygen And take up space I want people that know and sense their desperation And then join us in what Jesus is doing In seeing his name proclaimed Not only in Simi Valley But around the world So I'll just say that I'll warn you, a front. We are going to get into relationships, as my grandpa would say, come hell or high water. Amen? Amen. Jesus, thank you for today. Would your word and your spirit do the work? Father, would this church be a church that refuses to live on the surface? But Father, would we be a church that learns to live deeply in one another's lives? so that Jesus' name might be proclaimed proudly and boldly and with grace. In your precious name we pray. Amen.